This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vianne, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of October 3rd, 2022, here are some top stories. Should the public have a right to know the original source of all campaign spending? That's the question at hand on the ballot, thanks to Proposition 211, otherwise known as the Voters' Right to Know Act. Ben Giles reports. Prop 211 goes by another name, Stop Dark Money. That's when the source of money spent to influence the outcome of an election is kept secret. For the most part, politically active nonprofits aren't legally obligated to disclose the names of their donors. Right now, you can continue to use what we call dark money, anonymous money, to pay for tens of millions of dollars of political advertising. Former Arizona Attorney General Terry Goddard, who helped draft Prop 211, thinks that needs to change. In other words, if you spend money on media, you can't hide behind some kind of a phony baloney legal shield. You've got to say who the original source of the cash that is used for the advertisements is. It's tough to describe the scope of the problem, but by one estimate, produced by Open Secrets, a nonpartisan organization that tracks money in U.S. politics, more than $1 billion in dark money was spent during the 2020 election season. And that's just at the federal level. Under Goddard's plan, anyone, either individuals or political groups, spending more than $50,000 to influence an election in Arizona would have to disclose the original source of any donations they receive that exceed $5,000. The original source aspect is key. Goddard says Prop 211 is designed to ensure money is traced to an original donor rather than laundered through opaque nonprofits and political groups. A group representing Arizona business interests says it's not so simple. What we're talking about here is for simply supporting a, you know, an organization or a group, um, uh, you could have your information turned over to the government, put on public records in which that information can be used to dox, harass, intimidate, even threaten people for simply the the organizations or the positions or the causes that they support. Scott Musi is the president of the Arizona Free Enterprise Club. He warns open-ended investigations will sweep up affiliated organizations and individual donors who are completely in the dark about political messages from groups they once supported financially. This initiative goes after what they define as original source money, which means they could go after a group and then force them to hand over their list of donors, and then any organization that maybe affiliates with that group would then be subject to audits, harassment, and investigations under this measure. Goddard says that's why there's a minimum contribution limit of $5,000 when it comes to donors who'd be identified. The point, he says, is not to go after small-time donors, but rather large donations that are made in such a way to intentionally stay hidden. Goddard says that'll create a level of accountability now lacking in anonymous political messages, both for nonprofits who hide their donors and the donors themselves. So they're never held accountable. They're not responsible for the message that's being sent out. And those messages have only one purpose, and that is to win uh, by whatever means is possible, by defamation, by outright lying, if necessary. Goddard says that lack of accountability is perverting political discourse. He bets people and nonprofits would behave differently if payments for those messages were traced back to a company or individual. Ben Giles, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In business news, it's election season, and there are more than just people to consider on the ballot. 
Arizonans will vote on several propositions, including what is advertised as the Predatory Debt Collection Protection Act. Jill Ryan has the breakdown of the pros and cons of Proposition 209. In 2004, 15-year-old Liz Gorski was riding in a car on the way to the mall when a tire blew out. The resulting crash ejected her and her friends onto a busy road. One passenger died, and Gorski was left with years of medical bills and trauma. So I was, yeah, in the hospital for five days in a coma, and then I got out of the coma and they were trying to tell me everything that happened, and I just didn't believe them. Insurance covered some of her initial hospital bills, but she was still left with tens of thousands of dollars in medical debt. Some of that was referred to debt collectors, and her credit took a beating. And then you can't, like, qualify for a loan or an affordable one or housing even. She also accrued more debt and faced off with more collectors while seeking ongoing treatment for neurological and muscle damage stemming from the accident. She was only able to find housing through Habitat for Humanity. But I think if that program wasn't shown to me and I wasn't, you know, physically able to do that, I would probably, like, I don't know, be on the streets or something. She's 33 now, a mother, and she helped Healthcare Rising Arizona get enough signatures for Prop 209 to be on the ballot. Prop 209 targets all debt collection, not just medical. But medical debt is the most common reason debt collectors come calling, according to a 2022 Consumer Financial Protection Bureau report. Prop 209 increases protections for Arizonans who may face asset or wage seizure because of outstanding debts. The measure won't eliminate medical bills, it won't make hospitals charge less, but it will affect how much interest gets added on medical debts. But Arizona business leaders say Prop 209 has unintended consequences because it targets all debt, not just medical. Danny Seiden is the president of the Arizona Chamber of Commerce. When lenders can't collect outstanding debts, they pass their losses on to other customers, which means higher interest rates for everyday Arizonans. Proponents of Prop 209 say it's simply updating protections that already exist. With some exceptions, Arizona law lets collectors nearly empty a debtor's bank account, leaving them with just $300. Prop 209 would let debtors keep at least $5,000. Rod McLeod is a spokesperson for Healthcare Rising Arizona. We believe strongly that no family should lose their home or their car or struggle to put food on the table due to a medical emergency or an accident. But Seiden argues that the medical costs themselves are what should be addressed instead. I think having a transparent discussion about what's driving those costs, whether it's uncompensated care, whether it's, you know, a lack of options in the private insurance market, the, what people say is the rising cost of pharmaceuticals, I think we could take a good look at that and figure out a better way to do it. Seiden also argues that changing the amount debt collectors can garnish from wages or what assets can be taken as collateral will disincentivize creditors to loan to low-income earners. But Mike Weston, the owner of a multi-state consumer defense law firm with offices in Arizona, disagrees. He calls Prop 209 an incremental change. The collection laws in Arizona are very creditor-friendly right now. This makes it a little more consumer-friendly, but still, it's not going to be like a you know, a total like windfall for uh, on either side. More arguments for and against Prop 209 are available on the Secretary of State's website. Jill Ryan, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this story is part of an ongoing series about the candidates and issues on your ballot this fall. For more information, go to voterguide.kjzz.org. And thanks for listening to the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. 
in Tribal Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. In honor of Native American Recognition Days, several events will take place on Saturday in Phoenix. A parade will begin at 9 a.m. at 3rd Street and Oak, ending at 3rd Street and Indian School. That's the entrance to Steele Indian School Park. Special programming will take place at the Phoenix Indian School Visitor Center, and right next door, an event to mark the 100th anniversary of the school's Memorial Hall. As Christina Estes reports, the building was dedicated to students who served in World War I. This history is near and dear to my heart. In 1978, Patty Talahongva was a junior at Phoenix Indian School. It really is um, a gorgeous building. Inside Memorial Hall, with sunlight streaming through round-arched windows, she reminisced. We had our graduation ceremony in here, as well as the Miss Phoenix Indian pageant. When Talahongva attended, the school's name had been shortened from its original, Phoenix Indian Industrial School. In 1891, the federal government opened the school to assimilate Native American children into white culture. They were forced to cut their hair and abandon their languages. The boys were taught trades to help build the towns and cities, and the girls were taught domestic arts to take care of the kids and the homes of, you know, wealthy white people. Cultural assimilation included students learning to read sheet music and master instruments they'd never seen. Word of their talent spread quickly and the Phoenix Indian School Band performed across the state and country. A clear favorite, I guess, would be the Indian War Dance. Don Larry has researched the songs played by the school band. They talked about on their programs what they played, and this was one of the ones most mentioned. This coarse version of Indian War Dance was composed by John Philip Sousa and recorded by his band in 1902. On Saturday, Don Larry's group, the Territorial Brass Band, which focuses on early Arizona music, will play their version. We know that it's not authentic as far as a war dance goes, but we know that that's an interpretation of a war dance as it was performed in the early 1900s. Larry's band will also play two melodies associated with Home Sweet Home, a song performed by the Phoenix Indian School Band at a ball celebrating Arizona statehood in 1912. It starts off with, in a 4-4, uh, just sort of like sentimentally, but then it switches to a kind of a snapping waltz, as it would have been performed there using the other melody. And at the very end, the vocalist joins in. As Arizona was welcomed into the United States, Native Americans were still not recognized as U.S. citizens, but they were welcomed into the military. In 1914, when World War I broke out, 62 boys from Phoenix Indian School enlisted in the Army and Navy, a lifestyle that was not unfamiliar, says former student Patty Talahongva. In those days, the kids wore uniforms, they marched to class, they marched to the dining hall, and um, they were very much raised in that military culture. 62 boys left their families again. Two were killed in combat, Lee Rainbow and Wallace Antone. Their sacrifices and service helped change attitudes in Washington, D.C. That eventually led to the Indian Citizenship Act becoming law in 1924. So this is the original floor from 1922. In honor of the students' distinguished service, the federal government authorized construction of the two-story Memorial Hall. 
the building where teenage Patty Talahangva danced on the hardwood floor and watched movies from the balcony. So we know that the boys helped build Memorial Hall. We know that. And, and that could include the floor, it could include any aspect of the building. In front of the red brick building on the entry sidewalk is a World War I memorial dedicated to Lee Rainbow, Wallace Antone, and 60 other students. I think it's important to, for people to go outside and to look at that plaque of names and really say thank you. On Saturday, people will have the opportunity to say thank you and learn more about the students and school that closed in 1990. Christina Estes, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In science news, forest ninja bison are sneaking around the Grand Canyon National Park. That's right, I said ninja bison. Here's Mark Brody. With me to talk about them is Sean Golightly, an environmental reporter for the Arizona, Arizona Daily Sun who's written about them. And Sean, who are the forest ninja bison? The forest ninja bison, they're a herd that live on the Kaibab Plateau, and more specifically, they reside within the Grand Canyon National Park boundaries. They actually started out as, uh, or I should say formally, they're known as the House Rock Herd, and because they originated in the House Rock Valley. But since at least 2009, they have lived pretty specifically within the Grand Canyon National Park boundaries. What is it about the park that is a good habitat for them to live in. The park is actually a little unusual for their habitat in that bison are usually plains animals that like, you know, the wide open spaces of uh, North American Great Plains. Uh, within the boundaries of Grand Canyon National Park, they actually live a lot more in the, the Ponderosa Forest and, of course, some of the meadows that are in there as well. But what appears to be the case is that these forest ninja bison have decided to live within the Grand Canyon National Park because they've learned that they are safe from hunting there. All right. So we, we heard why they're, the forest is in their name. How about the ninja? Like, where, where did that come from? Well, I think this is kind of a term of endearment. My understanding is that it actually originated from a cadre of volunteers who participated in some limited lethal culling that happened within the park boundaries in 2021. Uh, What happened was that in order to manage the bison herd that was living in Grand Canyon National Park, they enlisted some volunteers that would help to, that would go through and hunt the bison within the park boundaries or to be perfectly accurate. They were engaging in limited lethal culling within the park boundaries. But while these volunteers were looking for the bison in this area, they found that they were difficult to track. Uh, They were often hiding out in deeper parts of the forest and moving through the forest with a degree of stealthiness that is rather unbecoming of an animal that can weigh up to 2,000 pounds. Yeah, these are not small animals. Like These are not animals you would think would go along with the word stealth. No, they don't appear to be sneaky at all. But as people have been finding in Grand Canyon National Park, they are perfectly capable of being stealthy. Is this a surprise to to folks who study this kind of thing? It is. When I spoke to Miranda Terwilliger, who is a wildlife biologist at Grand Canyon National Park, uh, she mentioned that most people, most other bison managers that she speaks to um, think that it's pretty unusual for bison to be living in steep or densely forested areas. 
And yet the bison in Grand Canyon National Park uh, do that electively just fine. And Terwilliga herself even mentioned that when she's had the opportunity to observe these forest ninja bison firsthand, she's been surprised by how silent they were moving through dead and down wood that even humans would have difficulty moving through without making a sound. Wow. So how are the bison doing in Grand Canyon National Park? Like, are they finding food to eat and and places to be? They appear to be doing just fine. In fact, they've been doing so well that that's why, uh, starting in about 2014, the National Park and other wildlife co-managers started doing a, a herd management program. Essentially, they had realized that the, the herd that was living within Grand Canyon National Park was expanding at such a rate that it would uh, likely expand to the point where it would overwhelm the carrying capacity of the environment. And so that's why, you know, starting in about... T- 2014, uh, National Park and other co-managers started working on trying to really just cull the the herd down to a sustainable level. So not only are they doing well, they're almost doing uh, too well to be sustainable. So Grand Canyon National Park is obviously a place that has great wilderness areas, but it also has a lot of people in certain parts of it. It's one of, if not the most heavily visited national parks in the country. Are visitors coming into contact with these forest ninja bison? That is a good question. I can only really answer that anecdotally. I I do know that there have been reports of times where roads within the park boundaries, uh, you know, bison have been observed on roads within the park boundaries. But I can't really speak to any, uh, I guess I would say, recorded instances of visitors coming into uh, contact with these forest ninja bisons, which, I mean, to be frank, it's kind of in the name, right? Right. (laughs) This appears to be a herd that if they don't want to be seen and they don't want to interact with humans, they're pretty good at making sure that they don't interact with humans. Right. I mean, are are park officials concerned, though, about, you know, the the bison trampling on particular sites or or maybe having other impacts? You mentioned there was some some bison management there going on. Like, are park officials concerned about the impact that the bison might have on the park and the environment there itself? Yeah, that is exactly right. See, within a national park, you know, Grand Canyon, like all national parks, they are really concerned with preserving the natural and cultural resources within the park's boundaries. And like any other uh, animal, you know, humans included, when you have sort of a concentrated impact on a certain area, uh, that can really cause damage to the natural and cultural resources in that area. So the park is concerned that because the bison has decided to concentrate within the park boundaries, because they've decided to uh, not spread out to the surrounding forest, that they are causing a little bit more substantial impact to the natural cultural resources in that area. The bison became aware of the boundary between the park and the forest. You know, whether they learn this sort of through generations or if it's a if it's an aspect of like survivor bias, where only bisons that wandered out into the forest where they could be hunted were the ones picked off. And thus all we have are this, you know, the examples of the ones that stayed within the park boundary. I think it's fascinating that uh, Terwilliger and these other scientists are doing research that has demonstrated that the bison living there now are aware enough of the boundary that they modify their movement when they cross that boundary. So they certainly have this, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, social or cultural awareness of this invisible line in the ground that was set by humans. And I find that just absolutely fascinating. 
All right. That is Sean Golightly, environmental reporter at the Arizona Daily Sun. Sean, thanks for your time. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Mark. It's been nice talking to you. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In education news, come November, voters will decide whether to offer in-state tuition to non-citizens who graduate from Arizona high schools. From our Fronteras desk in Tucson, Elisa Resnick reports that passing this ballot initiative, Proposition 308, would repeal a portion of an old state law. The debate began almost two decades ago with Proposition 300. The measure bars non-citizens from accessing a host of public services in Arizona, like child care, adult literacy programs, and in-state tuition. Voters approved it in 2006, just a year after Maria Dominguez and her parents migrated to Phoenix from Chihuahua, Mexico. She was less than a year old when they arrived. They chose to come here, you know, alone. We we don't have any family here. It's it's just us. And yeah, they they just they came here for the betterment of us. Dominguez is a senior in high school now. For as long as she can remember, she's been told how important it is to make it to college. She'd be the first in her family to go. But she wasn't exactly sure how to make that happen growing up. She's the oldest of four siblings and the only one who isn't a U.S. citizen. She says she didn't get a lot of advice on how to pursue a higher education as an undocumented person. In eighth grade, we always heard that, you know, there's there's scholarships available for everybody. You know, you heard all that, but you never heard the inclusion of what if you're not from here, you know? Like, what do you do then? It's a limbo thousands of young people around the country find themselves in now. DACA recipients were briefly allowed the state rate in Arizona, but today, both students with the status and those who are totally undocumented, like Dominguez, pay 150% of the in-state rate. Proposition 308 hopes to change that. If passed, all students who graduate from an Arizona high school and who attended an Arizona school for at least two years would have access to in-state tuition at public universities and community colleges, regardless of immigration status. There's no special path. There's no entitlements here. And there's no there's no taxes connected to this. It's just you get treated the same. That's Republican Tyler Montague, chairman of the Yes on 308 campaign. He argues Proposition 300 was passed during a very different era in Arizona, and voters should have the chance to decide again to make higher education more affordable. Affordability is a question Dominguez is running up against a lot these days. She says she wants to stay in Arizona, but going to ASU would cost her nearly $16,000 a year in tuition alone. She's not eligible for federal financial aid because she's undocumented. If Prop 308 is approved, Dominguez would save roughly $5,500 a year at ASU. Without those savings, Montague says talented people like her will leave the state for opportunities elsewhere. And the money that would have gone back into Arizona's economy will disappear. There are you know, immigration-related problems, but there's also opportunities. And you know, the kids trying to go to college are not a problem for our country. They're an opportunity for our country. But Michelle Eugenti-Rita, a Republican member of the Arizona Senate, argues Proposition 300's restrictions on tuition should remain in place. Because we are a nation of rules and laws, there's a process, and we are all we all benefit when we adhere to the process. Ugenti Rita argues immigration issues should instead be addressed on the federal level. 
Arizona is currently one of just three states around the country that specifically prohibits in-state rates for undocumented students. Figures show more than 2,000 undocumented people graduate from Arizona high schools every year. Alisa Resnick, KJZZ Easy News, Tucson. And for more information, go to voterguide.kjzz.org. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. Arizona had a good monsoon season, but what does the winter look like? Here's the show co-host, Mark Brody. Monsoon season is officially over, but that doesn't mean we've seen the last of the rain. This year's season was very active, especially compared to the last couple of years. Here to talk about what this season has taught us and give us a glimpse of what we can expect for the rest of the year is Randy Servany, a professor of geographical sciences and urban planning at ASU. Good morning, Randy. Good morning. So just how active was this year's monsoon, especially, you know, compared to the last few non-soons we've had? Well, actually, last year was a pretty good one. We were we we actually got about four inches of, uh, of rain last year during our monsoon. This year, we only averaged about two and a quarter. So in terms of comparison to past years, this was actually a normal year. This was pretty normal. And in fact, uh, we measure at Sky Harbor, but most of the rest of the valley actually had uh, more than uh, two and a quarter inches uh, of rain. So it was it was pretty good across the most of the valley here, actually, this this year. Yeah, I guess that would explain why maybe the perception was that, that this year was so active, because, you know, people don't tend to live at the airport. Right, exactly. And uh, the, the airport is at the lowest point of the valley. And uh, our rain, our, our rains are uh, really driven by topography. So normally, uh, Sky Harbor actually is the driest place in the entire Phoenix metro area. Were there places around the valley that got, you mentioned most got more, were there some that got a lot more than, than what happened at the airport? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you go up into the north part of the valley, up to Cave Creek and Carefree, they got over six inches of, wow. of rain during this monsoon. So, uh, yeah, it was really, really good. And actually across the state as well, there were quite a few locations that uh, that did very, very well. So the big question here, of course, is does this matter relative to the <laughs> ongoing drought we're in? <laughs> well, it, uh, it plays a role in the short-term drought. Uh, actually, this uh, the latest drought rankings that we have for, for the country shows that Arizona has finally dropped out of the severe drought categories. But that's unfortunately only going to be a short-term situation because our water is really driven by the wintertime rainfall, not summertime. And uh, unfortunately, we're going to be going into a dry year. As you heard, uh, Australia is going through some nasty weather. We're going to have the similar type of situation here where it's going to be pretty dry over the winter. So I I assume that means rain here, but also snow up north. No, we're not going to have that. Unfortunately, I'd love to see that. But under La Nina's conditions for the Southwest, that usually means dry. So we're not going to see those storms. The places that are going to see the storms in the United States this year are going to be up in the Northwest, Oregon and, and uh, Washington. Right. So so no, not really much in terms of snowpack to melt to help fill those reservoirs, is what you're saying? Unfortunately not. And so, as I say, right now we're, we're doing pretty good with drought, but unfortunately that's going to be a short-term thing. So over the next few uh, weeks and, and months, we're going to get back into drier and drier conditions. All right. So monsoon season officially ended at the end of September. But I've got to ask you about these storms we've had just this week. A really, really big dust storm earlier this week. Last night, seemingly out of nowhere, at least in my neighborhood, we got pounded by rain for like 40 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, these are not monsoon storms. These are 
the typical winter type storms that we have. It's pretty unusual to actually see these so well defined in just the start of, of uh, October. But uh, these storms are associated with the storms that come in across California and then into Arizona. They were not generated from uh, storms that were working their way up from Mexico. So uh, this this uh, week has not been monsoon. This is uh, truly wintertime rains that we're getting. But it sounds like we should enjoy it now because we're not really going to get many more of these. <laughs> exactly. Uh, unfortunately, it looks like we're going to have still another week of, of these kind of storms coming through, but uh, but then it's looking like it's going to start to dry out. All right. So Phoenix weather has all sorts of very interesting names for storms. Is there a, is there a particular name for these kinds of, of storms we're seeing now? Yeah. The meteorologists, we call them synoptic storms. Uh, the, the kind of storms that we have in the summertime are called convective storms. And uh, so the, 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 uh, the switchover that takes place means usually that the, these kind of storms are going to be a little more gentle, that we're not going to have the lightning and the, uh, the wind that we see with our summertime storms. It's going to be more gentle type of rains. It struck me last night as I was listening to the rain fall on the roof that it was almost like, you know, sometimes there are fireworks shows where there's a couple fireworks that don't explode during the grand finale. And they like 10 minutes later, they kind of go off randomly. It seemed like these storms were, were kind of like those. But as you say, definitely not monsoon storms. Right. These were associated. Uh, technically, we call the, the current weather system a cutoff. We've got a, uh, a big area in the upper atmosphere of low pressure that's just kind of spinning around the southwest and as it's spinning around occasionally it's able to uplift enough moisture to cause these kind of isolated storms that we see but uh, but they're really not monsoonal <laughs> so when you talk about this being a, a dry winter are you talking dry like no rain or just less rain than what we're used to less well <laughs> we're, we're going to be looking probably at the same kind of situation we had last year okay uh, and that was pretty dry i mean uh, you know, we, we, we've been talking here that the monsoon was actually pretty good, but uh, for the entire year so far, we're two and a half inches below normal. Uh, even though our monsoon was a pretty normal monsoon, we're still two and a half inches below normal right now. That's not great. All right. Well, on that uh, down, kind of a downer <laughs> note, we'll have to leave it there. That is Randy Servany, professor of geographical sciences and urban planning at ASU. Randy, good to talk to you as always. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure. And finally, in Fronteras News. The Mexican government confirms that it was hit by a major cyber attack. From our Fronteras desk in Hermosillo, Kendall Bluss reports hackers obtained data held by the military, including details about the president's health. Hundreds of thousands of defense ministry emails were among some six terabytes of data taken from the Mexican government by hackers calling themselves Guacamaya. The breach appears to have exploited a known weakness in the military's IT system. The data taken from the defense ministry includes information about criminal suspects, transcripts of communications, and information about President Andrés Manuel López Obrador's health conditions. The president confirmed the leaks were real but downplayed the hack, saying most of the information was already publicly known. However, the hackers say they uncovered evidence that the military is monitoring political and social movements in the country. Kendall Blust, KJZ News, Amosio. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station. Thank you.